Radio shows you love from the people you know. This is Sam Talks Technology. I am super excited. I've got a very special guest with me today. Uh, it's Tiffany St. James. Now, before we get Tiffany on the mic, let me give you a little bit of background. Who is Tiffany? She's the founder of Transmute, a consultancy that focuses on embedding better digital capability, and we're going to talk a lot about that. Um, her clients include some spectacular clients, the Cabinet Office, Google, the UAE Government, Parliament, National Trust. I could go on, but we have to do a show. Um, She's also, uh, Tiffany is the former head of public participation, a.k.a. social media, as we normally would call it, for the UK government and was a strategic lead in the Cabinet Office for social media. She ran the world's largest web rationalisation programme, was the first director of communications for Direct Gov and the first head of digital policy for communications for the UK government. If that wasn't enough, if that wasn't enough, she launched data.gov.uk with the father of the web, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, and together they continue to work towards making the UK government the most transparent in the world. Uh, Tiffany is one of the inaugural Tech City 100, and she's a TED speaker as well. I, I am going to get to a show eventually, but, you know, it's wonderful. Tiffany, hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, and I'm delighted to be here. What a grand introduction. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> I could have gone on for hours. That, um, we, we've known each other a few years now, and... Um, we recently connected again, which has been wonderful, and uh, I asked you to come on the show because I think everything that you've done over the last 20 years has been quite amazing, and we're going to cover a lot of that. But let's start off with, what are you doing today? What, what's your role? How are you making a living? Where are you? What's going on? Oh, thank you so much, Sam. So I run a small digital strategic consultancy called Transmute. And we help large businesses predominantly, but some small businesses too, embed better digital skills and capability. So it can be uh, UK government, other governments around the world and large businesses. And the reason being spending sort of a decade in digital change in the UK government, I really like the complex problems of large organisations and the scalability of such that I think I can really help and put my skills to good use. You know, running, um, uh, being a head of profession for social media across 22 central government departments, it's actually an easy analogy to go into a global HQ and look at 20 countries in the digital and social media provision and help them spot and understand what they can join up to better effect, if you like. So we do a different couple of things, really. We do skills mapping across a large range of kind of country provision and skills, digital skills mainly. So we uh, work with some fantastic technologists to use machine learning tools or AI chatbots to be able to survey more elegantly large numbers of people at scale to understand what digital skills they have, what digital capability they have, or what digital work that they do so that that can start to underpin the evidence map for digital transformation. And then once you've got that map, you can say, oh, you need to look at perhaps, you know, you've got 40 people, you know, working in content production across, you know, a large geographical area. Maybe you want to structure things differently or maybe you have some skills gaps missing. You need some key talent hires. Maybe you need to do just an internal program of peer-to-peer -peer because you've got a really good uh, skill set perhaps in a pocket of your business and actually everyone needs those skills more widely. So it gives you that kind of opportunity to look at retrain, rehire, upskill, restructure as the people and process side 
of digital transformation without the the plumbing, the technology, if you like. That, I mean, I could go on about that, but that's, that's generally what we get involved <laughs> with day to day. And that might result in us building, I don't know, a corporate academy on or offline for some of our clients, but that's what we do. Okay. So when people come to you, um, are they coming to you because they're forward leaning as in, we want to get ahead of the game. We want to understand from you how you can help us convert this company into being much more digitally aware and, and to be competitively advantaged or, or do they come to you oh my god you know we, we, we're struggling we just don't know what we're doing we're in a downward spiral we need to catch up where where in the cycle do you find or is it both ends of that spectrum yes it's quite interesting so there are companies that are built for the web you know the shinier end of the ubers the airbnbs and netflix so we don't tend to work at that end of the market i tend to work with companies that are um, perhaps earlier in their digital maturity that have old, large legacy business, what, 350 years of the post office in the UK, the National Trust independent group of businesses under kind of one brand and one banner. Um, you look at Coca-Cola 100-year-old business. So there's a, a variety of businesses that are large and have such legacy that it's harder to change because they're not built for the internet. But in the middle as well, I also work with organisations that are media companies. So I work globally with Viacom and essentially if you look at the work that they're doing then the business model is changing so fast in terms of what Linear TV used to do and deliver and how now they need to adapt and change their business models really rapidly so it's people who are large legacy businesses not necessarily all earlier on the digital maturity and then there's media companies because the world's changed around them really fast that actually the the common area across both of them is they've got to be up for it. So they've got to recognise and be up for change rather than me having to convince them to do it in the first place. So do you have, is, is it got to be top-down leadership buy-in to start with or, or can it be bottom-up led? So you have to have a leader that is willing and able to champion a digital change initiative even if they don't lead it. A lot of the work that I do might be with global heads of organisational behaviour or global heads of um, learning. They might sit within the HR team and that might be my first point of contact and then they'll put the provision to the CSO, Chief Strategy Officer or the CEO. Equally, it may be the CEO that gets and understands the need for what I do, whether I've been put in touch with them in, in some way or they hear about the work that I do and deliver or I'm approaching them directly and then they let the teams know that... Uh, uh, put us together so that we can work out if there's an opportunity to work together in that one. So regardless of whether I approach from the top down um, or come in at uh, a senior management layer, the CEO has got to be uh, having the driving vision. Um, now, I've been in large corporations before and we've done things like Six Sigma and all these strange things and they've never really done anything. They've not transformed because people go back to what they know best and they, they, they regress to how can I, in my little box, hit my quarterly returns, make my bonus, get my share options, go home, right? So do you find that when you go into a company that there's much more now an open, yeah, we know we need to do this, come on board, help us, or is that still a, yeah, well, that's that project over there, but we're still doing... I mean... It, can you give me some examples of companies you've gone into, maybe what, what the process might look like? Yeah, sure, certainly. So 
Both of those types of companies exist, by the way. <laughs> I just don't tend to work with organisations that are very heavily siloed because they sometimes don't have that attitude or aptitude for change. Right. Okay. So, so the the silo mentality that you just described of well, it's my returns or my um, view, or I've got to prove these results within a certain quarter. I'm here for two years and I want to make the difference myself. It absolutely exists in many businesses. Uh, it's just not the type of businesses or the or the type of organisations. They're probably going to be with. the dinosaurs that just disappear anyway. Well, I think you know the world. The world's uh, become more collaborative, hasn't it? And yes. actually, you know, we talk about collaboration, thinking about external partnerships, and there's so much collaboration to do in a business and in a business context. I guess the first part of starting for digital changes, you know, we've evolved, a, you know, a digital framework, you know, and it might be, you know, is there, is there a vision, is there a strategy, how are your digital operations set up, um, a couple of different touch points on digital culture, um, a, a couple of touch points on kind of customer service and, uh, you know, customer engagement, data and analytics, those, you know, seven or eight things that you look at in a business. And the starting point for that, the program, there might be a specific business problem that you're called in to deal with you know they might have a very clear idea and say Tiffany we really need help with this particular thing or it may be that they uh, actually have a range of opportunities and not quite sure where to start they might be for example trying to hire a chief strategy officer or a chief transformation officer but actually not even know what the brief might be for them and sometimes I get called in to kind of help shape that whether it's my help and support or you know just some some advice for them to be able to even spec the kind of right top tier on the right top team to make the business change in the first place. But actually, it's looking at what are your business objectives? You know, it's good old classical marketing strategy, really. So what are your business objectives? And, you know, who are your audiences and how you set up to, to do and deliver? So uh, we look at those different kind of digital touch points, if you like, although I strongly believe that digital is an enablement to deliver your business objectives. It should be now called business transformation enabled by digital, but people, you know, the digital transformation moniker is a little bit hackneyed, if you like. This, you know, it's been around for a couple of years and so many people have kind of jumped on that, uh, as in we do and deliver digital transformation. We're talking about business transformation here. And the other thing that uh, you do is an academy. Can you tell me more about the academy and what that does? Yes, certainly. Thank you. So having having had an early uh, hand in digital skills, when I was inside government, you know, it was my role and responsibility to help the half a million civil servants at the time kind of understand how social media was going to affect us as a government and therefore did a lot of internal kind of speeches and training and understanding the medium as it was evolving. And then when, when I came out of working directly full-time in central government around 2010, I realised that actually... Uh, public speaking and training was uh, a thing that I quite enjoyed and people still needed. So I became the top digital trainer for the Marketing Agencies Association at the time, now Marketing Agencies Group. And I've been working with Google for about five years, helping them with the Squared Online course. So helping them initially with Hyper Island kind of develop the original kind of criteria with the early team that developed that. And then as the guest social media lecturer, so I understood how to deliver for sort of face-to-face. I did 10,000 people over five years. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I understood face-to-face delivery and then online delivery. So then when I start working with clients to evolve their digital map, if you like, um, a lot of the results is we need some new skills. Or sometimes I'm called in and say, oh, Tiffany, we need some training. And actually I say, actually, what are your current business objectives and what are the current skill set of your entire workforce? 
because you may have people who use digital skills in a different job and they're not using them now. Or they may run, they might have their own side hustle and run their own yoga group on the side. They're really good skills. So we measure personal and professional skills. Okay. So So you do this across the whole company? Yeah. So we might do like 4,000 people across a global company, for example. Um, Or our tool providers do 11,000 people across bigger organisations. So what that results in, therefore, is, uh, oh, you need these mm, just two-hour bite-sized learning courses. There's 14 of them. I'll work with a bunch of specialists to come in and do and deliver to help that shift change very happily, whether it's a a short cultural change or a, a very specific digital skills change. And what's that's resulted in is me building on and offline corporate universities, so for my clients. And what I realised was it's a bit ridiculous that I don't have my own online academy. <laughs> and therefore, I built the Transmute Academy. And it's, um, you know, I only sort of uh, launched it this year, but knowing how to break up digital content online, knowing how to deliver online courses for Google, I then went to look at who else is delivering brilliant digital content, how is it broken up online, so I went to the OU and, you know, our, our you know, the earliest people in distance learning, kind of pre-digital. And then I went to MIT and I took sort of MIT's first online courses delivered on the um, EDX platform, which I just absolutely adore. And I thought, I don't care what it is, right? It could be rocket science or math, I might fail it. But um, I just want to see how they break up content. And the first course they did was um, the design and development of educational technology. Okay. (laughs) So I learned how to break up courses while looking at the best course content with the ed tech lecturers from MIT and 700 people in our global cohort, some of them running 30,000 people on a learning platform, right? So I had this kind of deep hand in understanding how to do and deliver digital content. So I have a very small academy. It's just got a couple of courses. We just launched it this year. But actually what we intend to do with that is to help um, some of our clients and some organisations that have their absolute um, knowledge in a specific area that we can then take their content and build academies for them as leaders in the field, whether that's individuals or small business or whether um, it's for public sector provision. So it could be behind the wall or in front of the wall. Absolutely. Okay. So we're going to come in the third part of the show. We're going to talk about your new consultancy club and what that's going to be doing. So I'm going to park that for now. Sure. Um, So let's take a little step back. So young Tiffany St. James walks into government. How how did you walk into government? (laughs) Did you just amble down Downing Street, knock on number 10's door and say, give us a job. I mean, how did that work? No, but I have uh, ambled down Downing Street and knocked on number 10's door. But you can now, that's fine. But I have done that. So no, uh, I did an international marketing degree. It was the second in the country at the time. And all of our cohort of people who did advertising or PR or or marketing kind of went to London. They generally ended up in kind of ad agencies. So I had marketing and languages and I worked in an organisation at the time that was an export company, but it's really using my languages, but not sophisticated what languages marketing. Just out of interest? Uh, so it was, it was French. We went into a French university into a second year of a commerce degree rather than wow. just learning okay. French per se. And it was in Aix en Provence, so it wasn't a bad gig, right? <laughs> There's been worse places. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, so I, I thought I needed to use my language and marketing and then anything you're exporting from, or from the UK is normally to developing countries and therefore the marketing wasn't sophisticated. So I thought, right, I need to do more marketing. So I threw my job 
with uh, not, nothing to go to, not much savings. And then I went and joined Stopgap, which at the time were a, a marketing, uh, like interim agency, if you like. Okay. And I've got one year of experience behind me and a degree, but, you know, a, a, a certain amount of confidence. And I was placed for six weeks in a government department, the Department of Work and Pensions, to run... I think uh, one of the first kind of minister and women initiatives um, over conference organising in Belfast um, for the Secretary of State at the time. And uh, it was a six-week contract and I left central government about ten years later. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you were effective then, let's put it that way. So I just really, really liked some of the social initiatives. I think the communications teams in central government are super, super bright people. Um, as that contract finished, I uh, looked at other marketing roles that were coming up on a contract basis. I made my own network of people. People in government communications move every sort of two years to other government departmental roles. They got on with me. They like me. You know, you have a fair and open competition, of course, in government to make sure that, you know, they're, they're procuring appropriately, which they still have back then. But essentially, I loved the work of uh, marketing. I mean, I'm sort of 27 years old. I'm running the first New Deal for Lone Parents. We're running the kind of multi-million pound advertising campaign to run benefits. And it was super, super interesting. And then, of course, as I was in government, I know I joined when we had no email um, uh, back in the day. You know, you've got a so, desk, a phone and an archive. <laughs> so is that it? I mean, yeah. and letters, just handing letters to each other. Yeah, nice. yeah. I mean, I mean, really early days. And therefore... Um, therefore, when digital started happening, I was really interested in it. I think there was one PC in the corner of the press office, um, and uh, they said, what are you doing on there? And I'm like, I'm on Hotmail. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, okay. And uh, really early and interested in it. So when the first kind of government policies came out as either white papers or consultations came out we had to put them on websites and I you know kind of helped as in my marketing role kind of evolve that um, and then we had lots and lots and lots of government websites if you like did that happen the way I think it happened so would would everyone just build their own thing and create their own look and feel because that's what normally happened with the early days of the web people in corporate companies would take ownership of a little area and just the the, the the brand look and feel front of house never was synergised. It was always, you could tell that it was a department server that had been thrown up somewhere as opposed to a strategic front end. Yes, and I guess if you look at it, so the 22 government departments have their own budgets and their own initiatives, but in the, somewhere like the Department of Work and Pensions, which is the largest government department, it was anyone in, it affected anyone in the country who was in and out of work. It ran all of Job Centre Plus at the time, the Child Support Agency. So a massive reach. And this reach. was external facing or internal at this point? Sorry, just trying to understand what you were... So the Department of Pensions, was it stuff that civil servants were going to use internally or was it you and I as a public... Yes, it was all the external, so all okay. the external policies, all the white paper consultations, all the precursors to a law, really. We talk about white papers in thought leadership in corporate business, but a white paper is, you know, we're thinking about making these changes to policy and everyone can, you know, vote on them or talk about them in a, in a public domain. So each one of those had, and, and there were 360 brands in DWP, right? Um, we had a brand rationalisation before we ever had web rationalisation, right? But essentially... Each of those government departments has their own agenda and they have their own budget. So it's not like, oh, there wasn't a strategic policy to put up websites. They just weren't that integrated previously um, before some of the work that we then did. Because 
the web estates grew so large that essentially then we had uh, the opportunity and the idea, if you like, this pilot called DirectGov, which was uh, actually... Uh, in terms of citizen evidence, people didn't care which government department information came from, and government departments changed their name quite rigorously and sometimes their policy area when they amalgamated. The, the evidence that drove DirectGov was government just wanted it in one tone of voice in one place. So there was this pilot, DirectGov, that, that um, I was hugely privileged to be, um, you know, one of the first small team that started to work on it. So we took three areas, which were disabled people and carers, motoring and parents as sort of the three large areas that kind of affected uh, people in the UK to look at going right across government and finding every piece of communication that affected those those groups of people and put it in one tone of voice in one one place and that then came to be sort of the government's first super site at the time but business link was another one tearing down government's web estate I think we got rid of 90% of government websites over five years um, and put them in one tone of voice for the first time. So was there a minister behind you that owned this? Because there wasn't the digital office for government that we have today, I guess, at that time. So did you have a uh, sponsor within government who said, no, this is what's going to happen, a top-down leadership, or was it a, or a skunk work that, that took off? Um, kind of a bit of both. It was it was a pilot to start with. Yeah. So we had to go to government departments and say, look, we think this is a good idea. There was no mandate, there was no budget, there was no strategy. Exactly. So um, that's what I was wondering. <laughs> yeah, I'm quite happy to talk about that. And I had to go to government departments and kind of convince them to tear down the web estate, give me their content, told them it was a bit, you know, rubbish or out of date or obsolete, and that it would end up in cuts for their team, you know. It was really hard. hard and to they sell. all just went, there you go, yeah, Tim. There you of go. Course. There you go. So I, I call it um, extreme stakeholder management. <laughs> Um, So it started off as that, but even then later when we had, I don't know, Tony Blair was the Prime Minister at the time, stand up and say, we are doing direct gov, and we got enough traction behind it that we had that mandate from the Prime Minister. There was still always, you know, one government department or two that said, oh, yeah, no, we think it's a great idea, but it's just not for us. We've got an exception, you know, where that la, la, la. And um, there would be an IT techie somewhere who took ownership and just didn't want to let go of their baby. It would have been seen as that baby. IT and e-coms and marketing and, you you know, a bunch of people kind of involved and things so even when you had a prime minister's mandate it also meant that sometimes you couldn't couldn't quite get it through and therefore you know had to do some work to be able to convince and cajole people that it was the right way forward but but in government positions uh there has been a minister for digital for a number of years and that changes you know with a cabinet reshuffle and and with uh, government priorities so you did have a minister that led that agenda and I guess we had two or three before then we got kind of Tom Watson who in the Labour government you know really charged forward with the digital agenda um at the time and and you know it was in the period where the Guardian was opening up government data and um really kind of got and understood that agenda got more behind it yeah wasn't the Guardian a, a guy called Mike Mike Bracken. Yes. So so Mike Bracken was the technical director of The Guardian when I was in post in government and then later became um, the digital director of the UK government and, you know, set up GDS and and then tore down uh, DirectGov as, as was kind of appropriate at the time for Gov.uk, which was then all government services. So DirectGov, because it was the first initiative, we made the decision to keep the corporate website which included the policy areas and the ministerial profiles because that was the the backstop of where we could possibly get to the first time that we did it and and uh, you know mike champion gov.uk which is now the really elegant service that the government have got in place to uh, transact and interact with the 
public sector yeah. online. It's very strange because I knew Mike in my days from Netscape. It's very small. <laughs> it is a small world, isn't yes. it? Um, so, okay, you've got your foot in the door. You've started to win uh, and, and you're beginning to grow. So when did you get the formal title, Head of Public Participation, then? I mean, that sounds like it was like a yes <laughs> You're rubber stamp now. Just such a fantastic title, that's right. So there were about seven of us in Cabinet Office kind of running the digital agenda, which was open data, uh, my role, uh, head of public participation, and then uh, another role that was looking at um, digital delivery for civil servants, so kind of internal, external, open data with the kind of three roles. Now, my role, head of public participation, was effectively the head of social media pan government, but also the co-creation of public policy. So how to do open consultation. So how to, when you look at getting public opinion into policy making, how do you get actually uh, the, the digital public opinions in, but also knowing that you can't just honour the people that shout the loudest or love or hate something because there's 80% in the middle just not engaged. So having, having worked within the government departments that led three policy changes uh, that, that I helped ministers do and deliver literally on the ground, going to town halls, you know, with the national pensions debate, part of the fact that we need work to 70. I had a hand in helping David Blunkett run blame. around the oh, country. Um, to <laughs> Alistair Turner did the external report that said, this is, you know, now the options that you've got, but to to make consultation happen thoroughly and to get public opinion, you literally have to to go around to different cities with the minister or Tim and get public opinion into it. So then when you come to do that with social media, you just kind of have the people who are all on Twitter or not on Twitter because you just won't have that balanced view when you're making policy. So it was called Head of Public Participation. Um, there's never there's never been another one since, okay. I don't think. <laughs> but we, we started, or I started the, the, the group which was the Heads of Digital Engagement across every um, central government department. So now all the people that involved in kind of digital engagement and change, they might have been Head of Social Media, they might have been Head of Ecoms or whatever else it might have been at the time to get that group of people together um, to look at what are the skills we need, what the capabilities we've got, you know, what agencies do we need to work with, what strategies should we be looking at, how is the world changing and how do we need to uh, respond to that, particularly as uh, in my appointment, which was 2009 to 2010, we had the MP's expenses debacle, which then uh, effectively meant that half of the MP's were looking like they would have to resign and therefore we expected an entirely new breed of ministers to come in at around the time of a general election with different viewpoint and different skills, you know, who would want their own YouTube, Flickr channel, website, whatever else. And we needed to make sure that we had the provision, you know, to be able to capture their digital engagement and to be able to, you know, uh, make that available. You mentioned uh, a little earlier um, the effect it had on government. What was the effect? I mean, I, I'll give you some context. For that. Um, in my previous life incarnation, I was a Microsoft consultant and I was asked to actually build Number 10's IT system. I was, you can blame me. <laughs> that, that's my fault, that one. Um, and we won the contract as Microsoft. And in those days, there used to be something called the Airbrick. So we had Microsoft Schedule Plus and Microsoft Office and all those things. But but the outside world was disconnected. Fundamentally, I remember, they used to have to get a um, USB or something of a similar nature, had to go through various checks, and then it would be allowed to go to an outside connection to the world. 
did that change? And, you know, were you bringing in social media? And there was no rules. None of us had rules around social media. You know, how do you write things? What's the tone of the writing? I mean, how did you bring that to people? Because you, you're breaking ground at the same time we all were. You know, you were probably earlier on Twitter like I was or earlier on Facebook. And none of us had the rules about how to do things. I know I made enough mistakes on social media. Too many glasses of red wine and a keyboard is never a good thing. Still not a good thing. Still, Still not, not a good, good thing. thing. I've learned. It took me a while. I'm a slow learner, but I've got there. But how did you bring that to, you know, you said 10,000 plus civil servants and, and at the same time ensure that, you know, no rogue was going off writing, I hate Boris Johnson or whatever currently, you know, how did you stop that? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. At the time that I uh, had this remit, there was no other head of social media pan government in the world, right? There's okay. one, one girl in the back of the BBC that I would call up and go, nails for you too. What, Bring her out. How are you doing? But, you know, I mean, you know, early days of Google, right? You know, early days of kind of Facebook and Twitter. Um, there wasn't another person in the world that I could pick up the phone to and go, how's this done? Or Google the, how's this been done before, right? So there's a couple of things that you have to do in this. So A, we created our internal centre of excellence so we got the heads of digital engagement and every government department together. Because government at the time, every government department was on uh, different channels, if you like. They were on Twitter or Facebook or YouTube, or, you know, and had their presences there, um, either fledgling or kind of fully, fully formed by the end of that. You know, the minute, um, so you've got the foreign office that are tweeting which are the countries that are safe to go to. And, you know, there's a public service in terms of, you know, the news that they have about foreign travel. So there's some really good services having, you know, DFID, Department for International Development. We're always looking at how to prove the worth of taxpayers' money and how they were helping, you know, uh, countries abroad that have been devastated by a hurricane, for example, and what the, what the UK taxpayers' money is going towards and showing beautiful kind of videos and, you know, rich content around that um, in quite early days. Um you had uh, Army and Navy recruitment, which, uh, uh, you know, has always been, you know, quite successful in terms of when mixing in the digital medium to hit, hit the recruitment targets that they have. So you had a variety of things that are happening. So the first of all is kind of collaborate internally to look at what was happening around there. And then the second is to, with that, you know, group of people, look at how to write the rule book for the first time. So, you know, there's a brilliant... Uh, a civil servant at the time, a guy called Steph Gray, you know, runs helpful technology, who kind of wrote some of the early rules of how we should behave on social media. Um, because biz at the time of the department that were, you know, using it to good effect with businesses. There was a, you know, really strong team in place at the time. Neil Williams was there as well. And um, setting some of those rules, so kind of collaboration on the rules. But at the same time, you've got the evening standard saying, so-and-so, Twitter crap being paid, X amount, you know, and throwing fruit at you in a very kind of public domain. So you had to set it the rules for the first time. We came up to kind of the first general election, and there's a period of kind of, we we'll call it informally in government kind of powder, where you're not allowed to use government communication to keep the airwaves free, if you like, and not colour kind of political um, endeavours. And actually, you know, people in a more senior position were like, oh, well, we just won't send out any communications on social media at all. And I, I kind of wrote, wrote the rule book for the first time to say which, no, actually, it's not, it's not, it's not a communication campaign when you've got the foreign office saying which countries are safe to go to. Yeah, absolutely. That's still allowed to happen. So I had to kind of write the rules and inform people kind of um, in post at the time to say, look, 
you know, there are some endeavours that's still allowed to happen, but that hadn't ever been broached before because in the previous general election to, to my post, that there had not been the use of social media so prevalent across government departments. So you kind of set out that rules, if you like, in terms of looking at that, and they have to revise it, revise it, revise it as your post moves forward because the platforms evolve. And today you have some really good exponents of digital media. David Lammy is very good. Um, Tom Watson's very good. Um, Chunkra Muna. Happen to be all Labour, strangely. Um, why is that? Um, but but they are very good at using that, that medium now. Um, so do you think that the work has now got to a point where they're all self-running? Is You say there's nobody in your role now in government. There isn't, you've not been replaced by anyone else. So is somebody doing your job today? Because you're not doing it now. You're no longer the director of communications at, at gov.uk or whatever. So who is doing this now? Who's setting the new rules? Because it hasn't stopped. It, has, it is evolving still. Yes, absolutely. So, um, so the, I, the mo- more senior post in digital engagement um, is a, a combined role between number 10 and cabinet office. And, you know, the, there's the head of digital, Chris, there, who, who runs that appointment. And actually then now runs the heads of digital engagement across every government department. So they all uh, still collaborate together within that group. And, um, you know, Chris is kind of head of profession within that. And uh, it's just the role that I previously did, which was um, a group head of social media, if you like, as well as kind of collaboration of open policy making doesn't exist in the role, but that, you know, the role still really exists within government. Okay. Now, one of the other initiatives you did within government was data.gov.uk. Can you tell us a little bit more about what is data.gov.uk and how it started and what you did? Yes, certainly. So there was an independent report... Um, which is mainly the way that you get most leverage in in government, both central and local, to say opening data would be a good thing. And um, I was part of the the first team that uh, launched data.gov.uk. So I ran the launch of it. My role, again, was, like you said, social media and um, uh, policy. So there was a a lead on open data and a lead of kind of internal government, but the three of us... What do you mean by open data? So let's just try and define that, I guess. Sure, sure. So the provision was, the uh, remit that we were given was to... Uh, make the UK government's first open public data store. Um, and we then obviously had to find what that meant for people and what do we mean by that? Well, it was to put government data, and by data we meant spreadsheets, information, you know, building blocks of um, information into one format and one place so that smart developers, businesses, could take government information, you know, the data, these kind of spreadsheets and information, and together with other building blocks that might be mapping or time-bound or um, other building blocks, so past data, present data, um, data that's looking at kind of future forecasting as well as mapping data, to start then to build new products and services that they could sell themselves to help the economy in the UK. So that was the provision. So the government data stores, can you put together government data information in one place that other in the same format that other people can look at those together, combine them together and make new things. Okay. And you worked with Sir Tim Berners-Lee, the, the inventor of the web. What was that like? Absolutely fascinating. So we were very, very fortunate. We had about eight weeks to make the largest government open data store in the world. But thankfully, we were given Sir Tim Berners-Lee to work with to, to lead that programme, which was just, I mean, there were seven of us who worked in the team with uh, Sir Tim and then um, 
Uh, then at the time, Professor now Sir Nigel Shadbolt, who was head of I- yeah, AI. Yeah, because they both Southampton. came from Southampton, I was going to yeah, say. That's yeah, that's right, that's right. So, so at the time, uh, Nigel was head of AI at Southampton, I think now, um, um, now he's at Oxford. Uh, but essentially, uh, looking at what is the way that we can do this at speed very quickly, the, the US government had opened their data store first, but the way in which the Tim wanted to do it was slightly different, which was to make linked data so that you can combine different data sets to you know, have a more uh, you know, powerful execution and and, um, build things uh, better and more rigorously and, and more quickly. So, yeah, I mean, just an affable, affable gentleman, you know, uh, funny, charming, uh, just a generous-natured uh, uh, gentleman. We opened government data um, and we launched the open, the open event in the uh, Guardian to a small group of um, developers. We had to build, you know, some products and services with um, so that that when we took off the doors to the data store, people would get and understand what we meant by kind of open data. So I had to um, I had to smuggle him in <laughs> a service lift <laughs> so that the brilliant reporters um, at The Guardian were where he was in the building because they'd have written about him immediately before we'd had the opportunity to launch. So, yeah, it's my claim to fame. I smuggled him in a service lift. <laughs> Now, uh, I actually have had lunch with Sir Tim before he was Sir. There you go. Oh, my God, what an amazing chap. What did you think of him? Oh, I loved him. Actually, I'll be honest and say, I didn't really appreciate how lucky I was, Okay, Um, So I was Netscape's marketing director. Yeah. We were teaching people about what a browser was and this thing called the web. Yeah. And and Tim had kindly said he'd come along to a presentation we were going to give to a bunch of corporates. And... uh, it was great, and we sat down and had lunch. There was about four of us having lunch with him, and I didn't, I'll be honest, appreciate how wonderful that moment was because, again, it never happened after. Um, and I, I guess we were we were in the early days of not knowing what the web even really meant. You know, you talk about showing people how to use email. I did the same in Microsoft. We we remember showing them Windows for work groups, and oh look, we've sent an email. Oh, ding, it's arrived. You know, and and calendaring and cut and paste and all those silly things we had to learn and again when when we were showing people the web it really didn't look exciting because you remember it was dial up and it was dig 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 this screen would build and slowly the dolphin would appear on the screen way look it's a dolphin and you've got corporate people going i don't get this i really don't get this we're going back to client server so i really regret if i'm honest not spending more time but i don't know if i'd had enough knowledge of where we are today but i am thankful that he was the most generous person to give away the web. He could have patented it, he could have made billions on it, but he's, he's never done that. Uh, he's got a new company called Solid now, um, which is, again, based on that open data stuff that you guys were working on. He's trying to, I think, protect the web now because the, the web is becoming the splinter net, as people call it. You know, Russia's trying to build their version and China's trying to build their version and, God help us, America builds their version as well. Um, so it's it's a shame. I think um, he's fighting very hard to try and keep the web open. So a lot of the work I guess you guys did on open data is very applicable to that. Well, I think it broke up for the first time a kind of new age of transparency. Like I said, it came at the same time as the kind of MP expenses debacle. We had a change in government, but a coalition government then come in for the first time since you know perhaps the Second World War, and uh, the. Uh, 
So Tim stood up about five years later after we'd gone through publishing MPs expenses, publishing what everyone was paid, open budgeting, you know, really kind of really open policy making and stood up five years later and said that the UK government is now the most transparent in the world and delighted to have had a great opportunity to work on some of that early programme of activity, obviously led by the genius man himself. Yeah. Um, where do you think it will go? Where, where do you think open gov data goes? I mean, how far can you be transparent in government? I mean, you know, there's, you know, well, we just had in America, the US uh, ambassador, you know, had his correspondence leaked. Um, so so I think, I think how far does open government and transparency go? The open government that we're talking about is public data. I think there's a really clear defined line between politics and between the civil service. So all the work that I did in, in my career was within the civil service uh, as a consultant, um, however, uh, with the civil service. So, so, you know, we talked a little bit about earlier, uh, but only just touched on kind of what the MPs are doing and you know, the kind of personal campaigning, what's happening with the ambassadors. And that, that sits in almost a kind of different camp from the what I'm talking about in terms of open, open policy making and open data. So I just wanted to kind of, uh, kind of, kind of delineate that because I think the really interesting things are happening um, not in the political sphere or in the ambassadorial sphere that, that um, is, is rife with uh, public opinion and debate, let's say, but actually open policy making and open data within public sector provision, whether that's local public sector or whether that is um, central government or a blend between the two. I mean, Alexander in the Director of Communications, you know, stood up at LG Comms last year and said from Whitehall to Town Hall we are closer together. So there's a real effort and collaboration between central government working with local government to enable better public service delivery. And where we've seen some really great initiatives are, you know, Leeds City Centre have uh, decided that they've got a, uh, the same back-end platform for all health services in the UK so that businesses who want to do health provision as well as all of the NHS trusted and the and the health providers can operate on the same back-end so that actually you can get and work on services together more collaboratively. And that's, you know, the sort of open government evolution i think we've got um washington state in the u.s that everyone's kind of looking at that have gone for holacracy a holocratic model which is we're giving the power to the front line so enabling frontline staff with the um with the right um tools and training uh to enable the right decision making without the cascade process of a hierarchical management now they've been operating in a holocratic model for the last year and i think Lots of other public sector provisions who are looking at the world differently and government 2.0 and open open government and, and what that will be are looking to see how well that's working for Washington is a really good kind of case study. We've seen holoco- um, holocratic models and holocracy work quite well in telecommunication companies. So it's where the, the senior management might say, actually, for any public grievances, the front line have got the... Um, They've got the wherewithal and the provision to give at licence, um, you know, financial rewards um, at their own discrepancy. And whereas the senior management might set that uh, bandwidth at £100, the frontline staff think that's too much, would only give people £30. And actually, you know, they, they've, they've, they're closer to the problem and closer to the reward system that might be right in that personal endeavour. So actually... Operating a holocratic model is is saving some telcos, you know, financial um, financial gains in that regard. So I think 
uh, we're just looking at what are the different ways of working, whether that's collaboratively, whether that's the same kind of back end collaboratively, um, whether that's bringing in small innovations into uh, central government or public sector or utilities. So if you look at a, an amazing entity like the National Grid, they have to keep us safe as a nation with... Uh, putting on and off the the power of the UK onto the grid you know from di- from from all kinds of different uh utilities and ensuring that is safe but at the same time they've got to be as innovative as they can so you know working with smaller startups to look at you know um how they can use technology in different ways as well as the genius rooms of mathematicians they've got working there is something that we're also looking at to look at how does how can we have ideas for the public sector and how can the public sector look at collaborative open working where are the other examples around the world where this is working to kind of bring that back in okay and one of the things we talked about offline was your trying to now take some of the learnings from central government to local government what what is the current state would you say of local government in terms of being open and being collaborative is it still you know back to where you were 10 years ago or are they much closer to where central government is with the open data initiatives or where are they? I mean, is, is local government, does it even have the resources available to make this stuff available, I guess? Yes, yeah, so it, it's in varying degrees, I would say. So central government, we did the open data store, you know, following that, London opened the data store, working on some of the kind of provision that we had put in place and some of the principles of data flushing and getting data in the same format. Um, the ODI then w- was set up as a kind of result of that. And then... Uh, I can still see today that there are different London borough councils, county councils and city councils that are at different stages of the digital maturity. So if you look at maybe the sort of 22 central um, uh, central London borough councils, if you like, you've got, you know, Brent's looking at AI and, you know, how they might be able to use that. You've Croydon just this last month uh, published a great digital strategy. They've got Neil Williams, I mentioned him earlier. He was in biz. He then led GDS for a while, the government digital service, um, and now is the chief digital officer in Croydon, for example. They just launched their digital strategy. They did an open collaboration uh, with the public to look at public opinion making in their digital policy and their digital strategy and what they should do. So there's some really good practice around on a local government digital level. We've just had Lottie, you know, London Office of Technology, launched just in July again, looking at how they can work with different London boroughs um, across to be more than the wealth of the the singular London borough remit. And that's really interesting. We'll be able to look at, you know, what power they have to be able to help um, London boroughs join up. You sometimes have tri-borough agreements, so you might have, you know, Westminster working with um, Wandsworth or Richmond working with Wandsworth and... and, um, Uh, looking at where they pull the resources. So we've already started to see individual boroughs having their own kind of open data and open data strategy. Where it becomes really interesting is when you start to look at smart city initiatives. Mm. And and actually, that's not just defined by a borough boundary, um, although you may well have pockets which are trialling and using smart city initiatives because, for example... They uh, have an area where that can work really well. So, you know, Westminster have got the jurisdiction of Oxford Street District, right? So you've got the opportunity to perhaps use different digital or open digital endeavours for um, 
placemaking and regeneration. You know, place uh, regeneration is when you're knocking down buildings and, and placemaking is now where, like, if you look at where King's Cross is, where there's all those shops now, all the buildings have been, you know, complete perhaps in that area and encouraging consumers and residents back into that area. So there's a whole way of being able to look at how we put in smarter city initiatives using open data and they don't naturally all sit within a singular London borough boundary but it's going to be able to find where is the funding and where are the pockets of provenance that we can really uh, define a project you know pilot it test it share the information that's come out of that you know that real the, the agile approach of yeah. you know, test share learn innovate scale uh, to be able to get it out for, for wider so i mean it, it, there's some really interesting things happening so does the lord mayor of, uh, does the mayor of london have any initiatives in this i mean you talk about boroughs at borough level and government level but in between london's got this really intermediary level which is the mayor's office right do they? So, yes, yeah, so they opened the data part? store quite soon after uh, central government did, and and that was the the when I mentioned I'm obviously it was the mayor at the time, right? Um, but took the provision of how we opened government data, and, and then very swiftly after uh, central government launched open data store, the mayor of London opened uh, d- data uh, for the city of London as well. Now we're in the royal borough of Windsor and Maidenhead. Uh, it was the former prime minister's borough, Theresa May. Um, ha- being someone who's quite involved with local government, um, I'm pretty aware that they don't have any initiatives in this area, or if they do, they're hiding them really, really well. Um, how do I get them to change their mind? How do I get... Who do I go? I mean, you know, Simon Dudley runs the council, but I, he seems to be more interested in building, you know, unaffordable homes, as we call it locally, because um, no-one can buy them, and potholes. He doesn't have... The initiatives around, you know, sustainability, uh, technology. I mean, you know, one of my one of my uh, hopes would be that you know we've got Crossrail or the Lizzie Line as we know it um, is going to be here very shortly. We're going to become this wonderful point on that Crossrail line, but we're not making anything other than creating what I would call a satellite town. So, how do I get him to? rethink his thinking is there anything i can do or is it just a case that he has to wake up one morning and find it within himself to create an initiative you know i need to work with people who are up for it sam <laughs> oh go on can i not point you in the right direction i'm only being selfish because i want a better i can borough. hear you um however there are some uh, ways and means like i said i am a, a master of uh, a, a stakeholder <laughs> management extreme stakeholder management look into my eyes <laughs> so some of the ways in which you have to find out uh, you have to find out what he's motivated by right as a person you know i can't it might say be it on that the radio he, no of course <laughs> not um but it may be that he's got very busy agenda or there's something more pressing in uh, you know his um in his uh, running of the borough um that that he has his sight lines on the way that as a consultant we always kind of approach things is a is a kind of four-step which is um look at the borough itself and look at what initiatives there are so you can't see any look at similar boroughs um to be able to kind of provide the evidence base so it's being able to understand what his leverage point is and maybe he hasn't got time right now or there's a better time to be able to catch him or he's got more pressing agenda but for me is what is the evidence base that he might need to make decisions around that so i find that evidence base whether it's in other local council provisions um, and then you see what's happening in perhaps um, similar industry. So it might not be local authority, um, but it might be central government or it might be other other places, you know. We sometimes look at the Netherlands in terms of what they look at and open citizen 
uh, ship and um, the way in which that um, they are very digitally inclined um, or look at the Nordics in terms of what they're doing, so look at other other organisations and provide that kind of evidence map and that leverage point to be able to help them to make the right decisions. But it's, it's a business case, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, Nottingham, where my daughter's at university, they have electric buses, they have electric cabs. I mean, I know other towns like Bristol are going, doing some great work. You know, they're putting... Um, what a, they're putting basically uh, wild gardens on top of bus stops to encourage bees. Other towns are building green walls so that they're, they're sucking up the CO2, increasing the air pollution. You know, these aren't hard initiatives. They're out there already. And it just needs someone to focus on it. But I don't think anyone I know within government locally is doing that. And, I mean, is, there a, a, is Croydon a good place for me to point him at? You know, are they the, the leading thinking so what, what, Council. what, um, uh, what Croydon is doing incredibly well is uh, their open digital strategy. And to do that, you've got to have a good kind of tech infrastructure in the right place to start with. They've you know, made some really good hires there uh, recently as well to get the digital operations in line. Tower Hamlets are doing some really interesting things in uh, the way that they uh, are re-engineering... Uh, citizen services uh, Lambeth are on a recruitment drive at the moment to re-engineer what they're doing digitally and of course they've got great digital and creative arts there uh, as I mentioned Brent are you know, known for using uh, or very interested in how they might use AI you have spoken to me that on this about city initiatives okay, which sometimes have bigger budgets you've mentioned kind of Bristol and Nottingham they sometimes have bigger bid budgets than perhaps a local council might be able okay. to do and deliver. Yeah. So is there a city within the area that might have um, the city council that, that rather than the borough council? Yeah, Redi- Reading, I suppose, is the nearest one to it. And, and then I would look at who out of the council team as well as the civil service team within the local authority uh, has a sustainability agenda because um, it might be part of someone's remit already that are waiting for um, bright ideas or actually have a plan in place that is in the middle of being worked out. Okay, look, we're fast approaching the news. Um, when we come back, I'm going to ask you to choose one of your two songs in a minute, explain why. When we come back, I want to talk about your initiative that you're working on, the Consultancy Club, how you help other consultants grow. Um, I've got a billion questions in there. You know, how do you charge? What, how do you find clients? What do you do? There's all the work that we touched on very briefly um, also I want to talk about schools women in innovation there is a bundle of questions I want to ask you but before we do you've got a song Spin Doctors Two Princes that you want to play what's behind it? Thank you for asking what fun uh, this always makes me feel so lively I want to get up and jump around do um, do <laughs> I might good job there's no cameras in here right there are um, oh I hope it's not did you tell me we were also video streaming live I hope not no I um, didn't <laughs> so uh, the Spin Doctors for me I'd heard about it before and um it just it makes me really lively. And then um, I had the great pleasure to uh, work out in Santa Cruz in California uh, during my summer placements. And I had the great privilege of an American friend taking me to Berkeley University, the Greek theatre, to see the Spin Doctor's life. And it just reminds me of an incredible summer of fun where I met my best friends who are still friends today. Well, let's enjoy this. After the news, as I say, we'll come back. We can talk to Tiffany St. James about all the stuff she's currently doing today and a little look to the future. Enjoy the spin, doctors. Thank you. Thank you. 
Um, hello and welcome back, everybody. Uh, thank you for joining us on Sam Talks Technology. This week, I've got the wonderful, wonderful Tiffany St. James. Now, where have you been for the first hour of the show? If you have missed it, you can grab the podcast later on iTunes or you can go and find it on our Facebook group, Sam Talks Technology. Now, Tiffany, we were talking about what you did today, what you've done in the past. I want to talk about what you're going to do in the future. And one of the initiatives that you've started, and I really want to start to unpack why you've done it, is you've formed a a wonderful Facebook group, which I'm lucky enough to be a member of, called the Consultancy Club. And we had our first inaugural meeting. I was going to say something else then. (laughs) Um, Yes, um, I would just point out, you may not know, that I ended up in Reading after that meeting. (laughs) One may have participated <laughs> one too often. Uh, thank you, Michelle, if you're listening. Um, anyway, what is the Consultancy Club and why have you started it? Thank you, Sam. That's very kind of you to ask. So I've been a consultant for, I would say the number of years, but that might date me. So I, I've worked for one year past university and then I've always been a freelancer and then a consultant, if you like. And my definition is a freelancer is you're bought for your skills and then as a consultant, you develop your own services and your own products and your own way of being able to help clients, if you like. And quite often I have uh, clients that um if you put them in a group, I would guess, you know, corporate leavers, if you like, they might uh, turn to the 40s and think, actually, I'm pretty good at what I do. I've got my own thing and I'm going to leave the world of corporate work. And I'm going to set up my own consultancy doing the thing that I'm brilliant at. And actually, they sit down with me and say, I have no idea how to charge. I have no idea how to write a proposal. I want to know how to stop having uh, like 20 endless coffees that don't end in work, you know, and all of the kind of what I call the business of consultancy. So there's that. There's also, 
younger freelancers who are ambitious but actually want to grow into consultancy, want to offer their own you know, services directly to clients that have specific skills that I want to be able to help. We've seen, you know, the, the good old management consultancies, if you like. Sometimes I'm called in when they've put a big team in and a provision in of the higher-end management consultants and actually the client team want a more elegant touch or they've been left with the strategy and actually not the implementation. And through that, we have seen over the last 10 years or so almost every kind of digital agency or creative agency or the agency landscape in the UK grow a consultancy up arm. As social media has become more productized um, and as kind of the web build has become kind of more structured in terms of the kind of design and build and more commoditized and therefore more centered around a kind of price point, the consultancy arm of businesses is sometimes profitable. I mean, I've even heard of agencies that sell social media and web design and build um, as a cost covery and as a lead into the consultancy arm of their business that actually makes money. And we've seen consultancy arms of businesses grow where like anyone who's not had a formal structural education in consultancy offer um, you know younger people who've got a deep hand in technology probably roles where they don't have business strategy they just know technology very well but are actually overlorded or overpromoted for their endeavor so seeing all of these kind of triggers within the marketplace if you like I thought that I have got a wealth of information that I really want to help independent consultants become uh, better able to break through a financial ceiling where that gives them more freedom and more flexibility and more time if they want to, to work around their family or to work on the projects that they really like and not have to take the work that they do because um, of n not knowing how to scale, not knowing how to productize, not knowing how to say no to 20 coffees elegantly with um, a lot of different people, right? So I want to help the independent consultants structure their consultancy, okay? And then with consultancy arms of business, I want to help them with their service provision and the way in which that they provide services to clients so that consultancy is better because the agents performing the consultancy for clients is helping our great businesses within the UK deliver the services that they are. So I just want that to be better and um and i've done it myself for 17 years and i think i've got a few things to be able to share so i thought first of all before you look at what are the products or services or ways in which you want to help people to just start building a really lovely community so i've got a closed facebook group you know search for consultancy club um on facebook and um and then i i, I just ask a few questions within that but i really want to help consultants um, or small businesses consultancy arms with that and we share things weekly we help each other out we just I'm trying to just understand what the community needs before I then start working together to be able to help serve it better okay so <clears throat> what's going through my head as, as I hear you talk is we talk about salesmen are, are born right but actually they're not born um, and you know Marcus Couchke who I interviewed recently told me they're not born they're spin selling they're sandler you have to learn it's like a muscle you have to train you have to learn we talk about entrepreneurs are they born or made you know you gave me a beautiful example of Pete Waterman um, who you know is a born entrepreneur can you just give me that quick story before I go on you were telling me about him that's right I had the great pleasure of speaking with uh, Pete alongside Pete at a client event for a couple of years and actually he started in his local choir 
And then he realised that he could offer his choir and his other fellow choir um, members services to for weddings and actually, you know, put a bit of a private deal for them together. The churches were all, all right and happy with. And uh, so he did that. And then he realised that uh, he don't a little bit of money doing that. And then he realised that if he... If he bought his choir team bikes, they could do about five weddings a day and earn a lot more. And I just love that, that entrepreneurial story of someone kind of working out how they can make themselves scale. I think, you know, when he was 12. <laughs> yeah, you were saying he had more money than his dad by 15. Or yes. Um, no, and, and Branson's the same. He, but they are natural born entrepreneurs, okay? Um, but again, entrepreneurs can be made. Not everyone is a natural-born entrepreneur. So I, I sort of get the feeling what this consultancy club, and I'm putting words into your mouth now, by the way, um, is initially how can you help consultants become better consultants? People might have skills. doesn't make them a consultant. Um, so I guess is that where I think you're taking yeah, this? Yeah, I mean, everyone's got what we call their own ology. So they might have done Sigma 6, they might have been done MBA, they might have, you know, looked and understood what they're good at, whether they've, I don't know, they're, uh, uh, done their Myers-Briggs profile or whether they've done a bit of NLP, but they have their own specialism. They could be, you know, my nature of my community attracts uh, speakers, authors, digital marketeers, um, and people who work in kind of digital transformation. But this is really for HR consultants, finance consultants, anyone who has a consultative process with their clients. It's not kind of just restricted to digital and tech industry because they have their own ology. They have their own way of being able to consult with clients. And we're not trying to break that, make that, or fix that. But for the people that, that, wants to have a better structure and a better process there's very little actually there's lots of courses for coaches but actually working out in a consultancy is looking at how do you understand what you're good at what your special skills are and there's processes for that to be able to get to that how do you work out your vision for your consultancy even if it's i want to work from home quite flexibly around my kids or it might be i want to grow this and i'm quite ambitious you know lots of people particularly in the UK, do a four-year, I'm going to grow, flip and sell. And then there's other people who don't do that are just considered lifestyle businesses. But there's something that, you know, I consider Transmute, which is a legacy business, which is I want to grow my business, but essentially I don't necessarily want to sell it. And therefore, how do I scale a business that I am quite want the freedom and flexibility of how I work without... Um, authentically, if you like that, that becomes at some point that I might, you know, step out and be the CEO and have an MD, you know, run it um, or become a non-exec director of it. But that's for me a legacy business that might, you know, might survive generations. You know, if I'm if I'm lucky and I plan it well, so legacy, not not um, lifestyle. So for me, for consultants, it's um, setting very clear vision about what, where they want to go to, helping them with goal setting. So we're going to run goal setting from um, uh, sort of mid-October, um, early November up until December. So a kind of six-week program whereby we're really excited because it's in January 2020. So not only can you do your 12-month goals, but there's a turnover of a decade, right? So you can do your 10- or 20-year plan <laughs> at the same time if you want to because it's much easier to track it from 2010 than it will yeah. be from 2011, right? So we're going to do 10-year goals. We're going to do some goal setting because there's something uh, independent entrepreneurs and independent consultants particularly, they've got no one accountable to themselves but their fam family or, you know, a small group of people that they can say, ah, yeah, 
you know what, we didn't hit our targets this year or don't set targets. And I want to help them and have that kind of accountability within a closed group for people who take that particular course to to help them keep on track by having a motivated um, uh, community around them to help that kind of goal checking if you like so setting goals and then it's about setting kind of you know the structure of their products and services it's about some of the two of the biggest issues that that hit our uh, group of consultants are uh, how to price things and pricing you can unpack in 20 different ways it might be how do you do value-based pricing you know how do you you know whether you discount how you structure your pricing what even prices do you charge for different things do you change your mind about them is it different for charities for public sector for central government for big corporations how do you structure your pricing authentically as well as then um, the, it's the lead generation piece. So the two biggest issues that uh, my consultants have at testing the, testing the group. What, what are you stuck on? Uh, the other one is lead generation. So all of the time, all agencies, how do we get and qualify uh, more appropriate business leads? So there's some of the things that I want to help. And then at the end of that is then then looking at perhaps, you know, the, the, the measurability and the kind of evaluation of the work that they're doing. So it, it's helping people with a, this kind of structure, if you like. Yeah, I mean, I, my last week's guest, Beju Solanke, was. I, I asked him because one of my, my challenges of being an independent consultant, um, building stuff and doing this and trying to build this into something that I want, which is a podcasting network with ads, um, is, is motivation. It, it, you know, I am a very motivated person um, in myself, but there are mornings. I mean, I had a Monday. Monday this week, I did absolutely nothing. I just sat on my computer and I drifted. And it got to five o'clock and I went, oh my God, what happened there? And he said, one thing is, you know, I should try and find a mentor because then I become accountable again. You talked about unaccountability because within a corporate company, you're still accountable. I'm totally unaccountable, apart from my wife is very good at making me accountable. Um, But but how, you know, how do we get to the point where... I mean, I don't know how to charge. I mean, I'm coming on this course that you're running, so tell me when it is. Um, but fundamentally, I don't know how to charge. You know, uh, I go down and find a small business, and I, I think X is, seems like a lot of money because I probably underestimate the value of what I'm delivering. Or I go to a corporate and I charge differently, but it does it just feels very odd. And just, I guess, asking... I mean, is, is it a British thing, asking for money? Is this a really... You know, it's a typical thing. You know, when in America, it's like, gee, they, you know, that's going to cost you so much. You know, so I'm I'm curious as to how to do that. Sure. So I think this course would be great. Um, now, is one of the things with this is, do you find more women are going independently because they want to have that work life balance, or is it a totally irrelevant male female thing? Yeah, there's loads in that, isn't there? So I'll, I'll touch on structure before I answer the, the okay. question, if you like. You mentioned, you know, how do you, like, how, how do you structure your day? How do you stop a day sliding away from you? I mean, everyone's motivated differently. It's okay to have a day slide away from you, okay? Yeah, right? but, it um, felt odd, though. Yeah, I always, uh, because of my nature, I always get to the end of the day, and if I haven't, um, if I haven't been productive in whatever I consider productiveness to be, today's a productive day, right? Absolutely, totally productive. Um, but if I haven't been productive in the course of the day, I kind of always, you know, admonish myself, I guess, at day end. So for me, I have a rigorous structure that just helps me feel pleased with myself at the end of the day. Well, not just please myself, but but I know that I will be disheartened if I've not done a couple of things. So every, uh, I don't keep to this rigorously, but a good friend of mine asked me a couple of months ago, 
how to how to be happy and I'm like have pleasure and purpose every day so whatever that is you know well that might be I don't know stealing one of my daughter's chocolate chip buns yesterday (laughs) right it's the pleasurable aspect and the purpose is knocking out a proposal you know before 10 o'clock you know those kind of little things right so there's pleasure and purpose every day um but for me um I uh I'm an early bird and I know the way in which my body works so I would say as an entrepreneur always make sure of course that you know what your body rhythm is and when you're good and when you're really good within a day. So I know that I'm, you know, a real early starter and I've got so much energy at the start of a day. So I will, before nine o'clock, I literally have two hours at my desk every day. And the first hour is spent on Consultancy Club. So I post every day, I go back in and I comment on everything that people have said. I might have commented on them like throughout the day, yesterday as well. But I'll go in and I'll find a resource or I'll find something interesting or I'll let a few more people know about it. So for me, it's building that, building the community and being valuable to the community is something I do for the first hour every day connecting people we're about two months old right and people have got jobs by connections in there already which I'm very pleased at the second hour is I contribute to my financial future so the academy work that I do is outside of um, although still within the corporate entity of Transmute but but whether it's my own academy or it's um, partnerships academies or working out what new courses that need to be done and delivered because that's a scalable aspect of my business so it's jam tomorrow not just jam today right so I work for an hour on that and then even if nothing else happens for the rest of the day I've done something to build my community and I've done something to provide for my own future and so those things are things that when I put my head on a pillow at night I go yes it was a good day because I've done something positive and productive so so that's how I kind of manage my day then I do consultancy and then I you know I'm much better at meetings and calls you know in the afternoon or certainly after three o'clock I, I can't work on strategy around that time um, and then I do homework with my daughter if it's school time. I eat with my partner when I can most evenings, unless I'm out or I'm out afterwards. Um, I'll still probably do a couple of hours work because my work is my hobby and my life and I love it and I got a bit better at shutting off. And then I'll watch one to two hours of absolutely trash action TV <laughs> with my partner to switch a day off. And that's my that's my rhythm and that's my routine. So just touching back on time, terms of you said about how do you stretch your day, I thought that might be helpful to share. But then the second part you asked me is about uh, women in STEAM and women in tech. So can you just kind of reiterate that to me? Yeah, I mean... Because there's uh, so much I could talk about here well, and I know we've not got very long left. <laughs> we haven't got long left. And of course we get to the really interesting questions when we get to the end um uh my wife's non-exec and um uh one of the things that really interests me is is work-life balance and and how is is consultancy in your opinion are you seeing more women going into it because they want that balance and men stay within the corporate environment because it's that yeehaw gung-ho environment or is it are you seeing a, a total male and female coming out into the consultancy world are we all changing the way we want to work Really interesting. So I've not done a study in terms of stats and figures, but there's one piece of work that Beeman did, the British Interactive Media Association, this year did the Tech Diversity Report, and it's the first sizable report that has been done to look at diversity in tech industry, if you like. What was quite interesting is they were looking at mental health, they were looking at neurodiversity, they were looking at gender diversity. Really important, all of those things to have in a kind of tech infrastructure. So one of the really interesting stats that came out of it, which is, um, and I don't want to be misquoted on it, so I'll, I'll give it to you in the links um, afterwards, the, the full report, um, the BEMA Tech inclusion report from this year 
And essentially, it was absolutely shocking, which was the number of parents that don't return to work in the tech industry. And predominantly, there are women, and they yeah. didn't split it down in the report because they have, you know, uh, more primary parental care, not exclusively, but more primary parental care. So there's a huge percentage of parents that, that post-parental leave never return to the workplace. So that is one kind of stat or fact that, that we've identified and actually, you know, um, looking at how we might be able to kind of cha- change that balance, certainly. In terms of consultancy, uh, I am grateful that my own community and network is served equally well by men and women. So uh, I think because I'm attracted to really ambitious people, there are both ambitious men and women. So in Consultancy Club and in my larger network, then then I have some, some uh, just absolutely fantastic women are consultants as much as men. So I haven't seen it, but it's not to say that if we really sat down and unpacked the stats, it would be, it would be different. Well, what, I do, what we do recognise within the UK is a, uh, and probably you know, further overseas than my eye, predominantly on the UK, is that working for yourself gives you greater flexibility and independence, particularly if you are a primary carer. And actually growing from freelance to consultancy means that sometimes those roles are better paid on a consultative basis. And that's the reason that I want to help consultants is actually you can have a scalable business working for yourself on your own terms. And wouldn't it be nice if your design for your life was to work around perhaps your family or your side hustle or your interest or hobby to be able to make it work for you? Right. And, um, yeah, and I, I, I echo that because that's exactly what I've been doing for 10 years and I, I've enjoyed it. And, um, and on... on on the structuring of my day, I will stop looking at the Liverpool website first thing. I will go and do something much more constructive because that takes me down every rabbit hole. <laughs> or, or just um, allow yourself a time uh, to do, be able to do that. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, <laughs> so yes. you can do it on a Monday from 9 to 9.30, right? Or just leave it alone. <laughs> yes. Uh. <laughs> okay. I will be better. Now, um, Last couple of questions. Um, you have a famous saying, which is learn how to learn. What does that mean? So I had the great pleasure a couple of years ago to um, set the kind of digital skills strategy for what was then the creative skill set. Um, and now it's called Screen Skills. So it was the trade association that looked after creative industries in the UK and now more screen um, uh, endeavours in the UK as a trade association. And we uh, looked at a bunch of different initiatives and reports and kind of collaborated and pulled together our amazing amount of research. And uh, the one shining factor was if we can help our university students to do one thing for the UK and digital, what could it be? And it was to learn how to learn. And the reason being is that the digital skills that we're being taught in universities are not always up to date. Not in every case, you know, people like Ravensbourne and, and um, you know, some brilliant uh, other universities, you know, South Bank are looking at um, games and uh, what they're doing to deliver. And we've got Goldsmiths, who've got an incredible machine learning team. Um, not all blanket universities, but... People are exiting universities with perhaps not the right digital skills for industry. And we hear this because of my role on BMA as group chair of universities for the British Interactive Media Association, the oldest trade association with tech in the UK. And digital agencies come to us and say, hey, we love university talent, but, you know, sometimes they don't have the right either coding skills, they haven't done privacy or they haven't done cyber and we need these things differently or we want to shape 
earlier, younger people in the way that is the right culture for our agency. So knowing that, th- that we are going to continue to need digital skills, but those digital skills will change, looking at what are the softer skills that can always help both our uh, university graduates, but even, our, even the younger children now, the primary school and secondary school children are learn how to learn. You know, we're not given a framework for how to adopt learning and... Um, and it does exist, and other countries sometimes look at that to be able to look at how do you how do you learn how do you learn a new language or how do you have a framework to pull, for learning to evaluate a good idea or to take up a new skill rather than just get stuck in right and to look at how to collaborate how to problem solving these are the skills that are considered softer skills, but actually where we're going in the future and going so far and so fast, we're going to need these skills rather than I'm an expert in, you know, Python, which is hot right now, but might not be in a few years or so. Yeah, I mean, schools do not help. I mean, they're still, well, the schools my children have been to, I'd say, let me let me counter that, um, appear to teach what I call Victorian England skills. Um, you know, they're still teaching in maths, you know, pi r squared and Pythagoras' theorem and... And that th- there aren't those practical skills, you know. We, you can Google nearly anything, right? So knowledge and information is no longer needed to be retained in that rote format. I mean, when was the last time you remembered a phone number? I don't need to now. I used to remember fifty phone numbers, right? Don't remember one part, part of my wife's. I do remember yours, darling. Um, other than that, I don't because it's in the phone. Um, so there are different skills we have to learn. Wow. Um, I could go on and on. There's so much more. Um, Tiffany, all I wanted to say is thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for coming over to Marla. We're going to go for a glass of champagne after that. Ha, 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 on the river. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. Now, before we do go, how can people find out more about you? Where can they connect with you? Just give me a quick list. Thank you. I'm Tiffany St. James on most social platforms, uh, like LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook. Uh, the Tiffany St. James is my Facebook page where I post more of my business than my personal, and um, I prefer that. Uh, I uh, my business is uh, Transmute the, uh, the website is wetransmute.com my public speaking um, or should I speak about technology at um, conferences check her out on TED <laughs> thank you for so much is tiffanystjames.com and I'd be delighted to connect with any of our listeners on any of those platforms of their choice wonderful uh, again all I can say is thank you so much for your time it's been fascinating and thank you for all the work you did with the government it was very useful Sam, that show was amazing. To listen again, please visit our website, marlofm.co.uk, or visit our Facebook group, Sam Talks Technology. And now you can subscribe on iTunes. Never miss a show again. See you next week. Same time, same place.